I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. That's right, and we vow to help you learn something fun. You used to laugh at this. <laughs> you used to laugh. I gotta, I gotta glare at you first. That's nice. And then laugh. We've got uh, some stuff coming around the corner in our personal lives. Mm-hmm. We're going to be taking a trip to Philadelphia, we've mentioned on the show. And yeah. Some of you in your letters have been sharing places of interest. Yeah. Restaurant recommendations. Uh, but before we go, I thought, you know, we're, we're going to be enjoying a lot of like colonial revolutionary era historical sites, naturally. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. So I thought we'd spend an episode boning up on, on that era. Okay, cool. So we're going to talk about the forgotten founding father, John Jay. John Jay sounds like a rapper name. John Jay-Z. Hmm. <laughs> but yeah. And his uh, partner in his law practice, Cub Jingleheimer Smith. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes to Cub Jingleheimer Smith. <laughs> There, there are some things that, uh, despite being perhaps the least remembered of the major founding fathers, like, he is major for a reason. Like, he was the first Chief Justice of the United States. Oh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he negotiated the Treaty of Paris that ended the Revolutionary War. Oh. Regardless, he still doesn't get a lot of attention these days. You know, he's not on money. He was never president. No one wrote a musical about him. Yet. <laughs> Next thing to do, someone out there, John Jay. Cub Jingleheimer Schmidt. Needs a musical. Mm-hmm. Lots of jazz hands, please. His Tonys are my Tonys, too. <laughs> uh, he, he was born in the mid-1700s into a wealthy New York family. Uh, how wealthy were they? Well, they had plenty of slaves. And, like, they had a coat of arms, the Jay family. They they were that kind of money. Dang. So moving on from his home life, mm-hmm. he grows up, he moves out, he becomes a, a successful big city lawyer, right? As a lot of people sure do back then. I feel like <laughs> everyone we talk about, oh, they were a lawyer. When he comes out onto the scene in, like, revolutionary history, mm-hmm. 1774, he became the secretary of the New York Committee of Correspondence. 1774 is when Felicity in the American Girl book series is set. Yeah? Yeah! All American Girl books start on a four. Mm-hmm. In, in whichever decade. Uh-huh. And she was 1774. Just so you know. I think they might have planned it because of John Jay's involvement. Probably. Probably not, actually, but uh, that's Probably okay. Probably some other events that happened that year, but it's, you know. It's a big year. Uh, <laughs> so, do you know about these committees of correspondence? No. Okay. I don't. They weren't in Felicity, <laughs> an American girl tale. Uh, well, the, these committees were organized uh, in every colony, and their job was to get news of what the British were doing out to the people, because uh, we were a rural nation back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also organized resistance and acted as sort of a shadow government. Uh, well, here's what the British are doing, but if we were in charge, this is what, how we would handle these problems, and the world would be a much better place, sort of thing. Uh, now, he began his involvement as, as a very conservative guy. Like, uh, he was a delegate to the First Continental Congress in 1774, and he argued for reconciliation with Parliament. Like, hey, let's, we, we have a, a obligation to take every avenue available to just get our uh, concerns heard and resolved without shooting anybody. Uh, and, and we don't really need to be independent as long as... They take care of us better. Okay, that didn't really last long. Uh, he he always valued the rule of law, property rights, and and feared mob rule the rest of his career. But as things went on, uh, uh, British reactions kept getting worse and worse with the intolerable acts, and you know the the Boston massacre and the burning of Norfolk, Virginia, and then. Shots fired at Lexington and Concord. Like, every step of the way, he's just like, yeah, okay, we got to fight a war. We got to get independent. It's just not working. Yeah. Once uh, he saw reconciliation as impossible, he put all his efforts toward independence. 
Uh, he worked to suppress loyalists in government, including his brother James J. James J. You know, John J. My good bro JJ. Was there a JJ? <laughs> I hope there was a JJ. I don't think there were. Uh, Johnny J. There were seven J siblings. Uh, John was the oldest, and then there's James. But John was in charge, in one way or another, of another four. Uh, two of them were struck blind from uh, smallpox as children. Aww. One was mentally ill and uh, uh, had to be cared for, and uh, uh, another was constantly broke and had to be supported. Uh, so a rough time. Uh, he didn't really win the family lottery, John Jay. Poor John Jay. And, you know, one of his brothers was a, a loyalist in the New York legislature, and they were debating against one another. Like, actual brother against brother. Not just the Civil War, folks. It Here we go. Right here. Oh, boy. He was then elected to be president of the Continental Congress from 1778 to 1779. So, like, when Washington is asking for funds and support, he's the guy writing back saying, Wish we could! Ain't got none! That That was his job for a year. Uh, his work for the revolution and contact with the Patriot Spy Network uh, was later fictionalized in James Fenimore Cooper's novel The Spy, published in 1821. Ooh. It was like one of the most popular American novels of the time, and, and went on to like be sort of the the template from which uh, these romantic novels were written for the next 30 years or so. So some of that spy stuff that he did, in fact, not in, like, novelization form, uh, he was the acting leader of the Committee for Detecting and Defeating Conspiracies. Uh, he conducted hundreds of investigations, uh, which led to plenty of arrests and trials involving influential businessmen and political figures loyal to the British crown, sniffing out uh, uh, Tories that were trying to do secret spy stuff. Uh, he, he organized clandestine operatives and ran dangerous counterintelligence missions. Uh, the committee heard more than 500 cases involving disloyalty and subversion. That's a lot. That's a lot. He's a busy boy. Now, he got that place in the Committee for Detecting and Defeating Conspiracies uh, following a 1776 investigation that he performed, which uncovered a plot that led all the way up to the colonial governor of New York to prepare New York City for occupation by the British military. Another arm of this conspiracy led toward one of Washington's bodyguards, who was just waiting for the order to stab him in the back. That's bad dude. Yeah, you don't hear about that in the history books. Yeah, why don't anyone talk about that? That's pretty cool. Dude's just waiting there, like, okay, when do I get to do it? Do I get to do it now? That wasn't even in Sleepy Hollow, and that was all about, like, Washington spies and junk. Yeah. So uh, all of these activities, the, the CIA recognizes him as the father of American counterintelligence. I mean, that's kind of a cool thing to be known for. That's a cool title. Like, yeah. Yeah. They, they, uh, father of that stuff. They named one of their conference rooms the John Jay Room. <laughs> so uh, after his term as president of the Continental Congress, he became minister to Spain for a few years, uh, 1779 to seventeen. 82. His job was to, to get uh, King Charles to recognize the U.S. as an independent country and get an agreement for, like, financial support through the war. He got neither, pretty much. Uh, see, Spain had plenty of their own colonies in the Western Hemisphere. So if they uh, supported a bid for independence from one, then what's to stop? You know, their colonies. Yeah, what was to stop yeah. Latin America from becoming independent? Like, they they were putting down their own revolts at the exact same time. Yeah, they they ain't gonna support independence. No, 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 not at all. But they really do hate the British. Yeah, uh, they got into the Revolutionary War, sort of covertly, not as an ally of the U.S., but as an ally of France, uh, technically on paper. And so there were some secret uh, undercover loans given to the U.S. And a lot of barrels of gunpowder just sort of left on a truck in <laughs> New truck? Orleans. A truck? They had trucks? A hand truck? A, a <laughs> cart? A cart. <laughs> just a, a lot of stuff like, hey, um, 
We just misplaced all these bullets in uh, Havana if you just want to sail over there and get them. We don't really want to take all this gunpowder back with us. So, you know, grab all you can. Yeah, so, so he was able to, to get some covert support like that, uh, which is something, I guess. Yeah, yeah. His time in Spain ended when it was uh, time to go to France and negotiate the Treaty of Paris, the, the peace treaty that ended the Revolutionary War. He became roommates with Benjamin Franklin during this. Hey, party time. That was a heck of a party. <laughs> Franklin knew how to party. That's why we remember him. Jay did not party much. That's why we forgot him. Poor Jay. Poor Jay. Poor uh, Jay. John Jay, Franklin Adams, and uh, Henry Lawrence were negotiating for the United States. David Hartley and Richard Oswald for the United Kingdom. Uh, the U.S. was in a treaty of alliance with France and could not make peace without their agreement. Uh, the French and the Spanish had their own treaty saying the same thing. The Dutch got sort of involved because they were making wartime loans. So there, there's a lot of hands around the bargaining table and nothing's getting done at all. Yeah, that happens. Because everybody's trying to get what's best for them, and there's just too many moving pieces. There's too many people involved, like, sending secret letters to one another. Like, say, somebody from France going up to one of the Americans and making this promise, going to another American and making a different promise to just see what happens, and sending sealed letters across the Atlantic both ways. Uh, these negotiations took forever. Meanwhile, people are still fighting and and dying the negotiators are just sitting back and waiting to see like if the next battle puts them in a better position because mm. spain's holding out just waiting for their siege of gibraltar to to go through because they really just wanted gibraltar back from england that that's the big thing they wanted out of american independence <laughs> it didn't happen what jay did is he just sort of cut through it and started uh, dealing directly one-on-one -on -one with the, the British. He, he sent word to their prime minister, uh, Lord Shelburne at the time, that the U.S. was just going to negotiate separately. That's it. We'll take care of everybody one at a time. And so that uh, got things rolling a bit quicker, especially because uh, Shelburne's plan was to be very, very generous to the U.S. Uh, so that they would grow and develop and become a tight trading partner. So he gave a very favorable deal, and the Americans are like, yes, we will take all of these wonderful things you're saying. Like, oh, the entire Northwest Territory? Great. Uh, shipping rights off Newfoundland? Fantastic. Et cetera, et cetera. Like, oh, this is a really good border with Canada. We like this border. <laughs> like, the, the English threw in Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> Just as a bonus. Now, it was so favorable, though, that Parliament rejected it and uh, cast Shelbourne out of office. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, people like that too much. Go away. <laughs> hey, he gave up a lot to make the Americans happy. It, it made his people a lot less happy. But since negotiating a new deal would require approval from uh, the U.S. Congress, so that's at least one round trip across the Atlantic, it'd take forever and Parliament was sick of paying for the war in the first place, they eventually accepted it anyway. I'll go the more economical route. The, the whole idea was to just foster American growth as a trade partner so that now there's an independent nation that had to sell its goods somewhere and buy them from somewhere, which is essentially all the benefits of having the American colony in the first place. But now England just doesn't have to like pay for the admin yeah. Taking care of that ourselves now. <laughs> so I, I guess that might be Jay's biggest victory as a diplomat, right? Breaking through the gridlock and uh, recognizing that the UK was sick of fighting and they were willing to give us plenty as long as we liked them better than France uh, going ahead. <laughs> so uh, after that, he uh, took the position of Secretary of Foreign Affairs, uh, put, which put him in charge of American foreign policy from uh, 1784 to 1789. He had a big job. He had a lot of work to do, a lot of responsibility. Uh, he had to get recognition of the U.S. as an independent nation from world powers. He had to get American currency recognized by foreign banks and establish credit with them. 
uh, pay off the war debt to France and Spain and the Netherlands and everybody else, uh, negotiate borders where the Paris Treaty left them unclear, whole lot of tension with Spain over where Florida starts. <laughs> they left that one real, real fuzzy. They, he had to um, establish American shipping and, and protect them from pirates. Big deal. And do it all without the authority of a strong central government's backing. These were the days of the Articles of Confederation. He's got a lot to do. and He did not have a manual about how to do those things. I mean, he was the first person with the job. He's he's writing the manual. And you're like, well, gotta go get this currency recognized. Huh. We're gonna back. Where to start? Let's see, we have no assets to back it with, and no ability to levy taxes. Just Mm -mm. gonna wander into this bank and be like, hey, look at our cool money. Wanna (laughs) recognize it? I'll give you some. (laughs) And by the way, can you give us lots of money, just like for free? We're good for it, I promise. (laughs) Poor John Jay. Man, that's, that's rough. I guess uh, an example of what he was doing these years, uh, in 1786, he negotiated the Jay Gardaqui Treaty with uh, Don Diego Gardaqui of Spain. Uh, so Spain closed the port of New Orleans to Americans in 1784 uh, because they wanted to cut off or, or at least restrain American westward expansion because they want that continent. Like this. Yeah. Uh, Spanish control is, you know, everything west of the, the Mississippi, you know, Texas is huge. Mexico's huge. We're talking about that era of the, the colonial, you know, situation. Mm-hmm. So Jay goes over to negotiate. He's about to head out for Madrid when he finds out that Don Diego Gardaqui is already in New York. So they just hang out there. <laughs> Saves him a trip. Uh, So the agreement they reach is that the U.S. would not sail the Mississippi River for 25 years. Okay. And Spain would open their European ports and provide some support against the Barbary pirates. The Mississippi is really long. Yes. Like, how did they make sure no one was on it? By sending Spanish people on it to, to trade for what's in the interior. And uh, you're not going to sail to get out if you can't pass New Orleans. But uh, the people in the brand new state of Kentucky who wanted to sell, you know, sail their uh, uh, farm products down the river to to sell in Caribbean and European ports couldn't. And they were very, very unhappy. Okay. Uh, as was, you know, the, the rest of the American South. But you know who's pretty happy? The North. Because they had all these European ports they could now uh, send their, their goods to. Yeah, it's true. Uh, but that's not enough for the entire country to be happy. Congress did not ratify the treaty, and everybody was pretty unhappy with how the whole thing went. Uh, Spain continued to deny access to New Orleans and the Mississippi because they could. <laughs> and uh, Gardaqui reported that Jay was, quote, a very self-centered man. With a vain and domineering wife. So that man is so self-centered, trying to like make all this stuff happen for this country. <laughs> all he thinks about is himself. Well, I mean, he completely failed at uh, negotiating for what he was sent to negotiate for. Like, hey, Jay, uh, go and get us uh, access to the Mississippi and New Orleans. Okay, okay, okay. I talked to Gardaqui. He said no for twenty-five years. <laughs> I think this is the deal we should take. I don't know if that's being self-centered, though. (laughs) I think that's being like, well, this is all we're going to get, so... Now, whether this had any impact on the negotiations or not, I don't know. But King Charles III did give him a prize stallion during the negotiations. Hey! Get the horse! (laughs) I couldn't get the river, but I got a horse! (laughs) So, yeah, the the government under the Articles of Confederation didn't last very long. Uh, Like I said before, they they couldn't levy taxes to pay for all the things they needed to do or, you know, pay for the promises made in the war to allies and even, you know, the Patriot soldiers. Uh, Back when he was president of the Continental Congress, he wrote to the states asking for, for money 
Uh, taxes were the price of liberty, the peace, and the safety of yourselves and prosperity. He argued that Americans should avoid having it said that America had no sooner become independent than she became insolvent. Or that her infant glories and growing fame were obscured and tarnished by broken contracts and violated faith. That definitely sounds like a guy writing to ask for money. <laughs> yeah, that does. The, the central government also had no enforcement powers, so decisions they made were meaningless. Like, you can't... Like, uh, they can say whatever they want, but the states can say, eh, make me. What are you gonna do? And the articles themselves took over three years just to ratify. Like, th these, this was not a good roadmap for making a new government. Yeah, not really. So, uh, James Madison got the state of Virginia to call for a convention to alter the articles uh, in order to make the government work. And that convention, when they convened in Philadelphia, instead drafted an entirely new constitution. John Jay was not there. He did not attend. John Jay? What are you doing? I, diplomating, I guess. Asking for money? Asking for new horses. What was wrong with his old horse? It didn't match the new horse. That's rude. Don't <laughs> compare your horse to another horse. It has feelings. It deserves to be thought of as an individual horse. That's very true. Take care of your horses, folks. Take care of your horses, and you might get invited to the Constitutional Convention. Recognize that every horse is unique. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> what? You sound so, like, sincere about these horse problems. Well, it's not. Horses <laughs> got a lot going on in their lives, and it's not fair that they're being, like, compared. Might I remind like, oh, you? Like, oh, your coat isn't as shiny as Betsy over there. You're gonna go turn into glue. Might I remind you of these horse problems that we invented? <laughs> Uh, no, I think these are true. I think these, like, this This is in the history books. Uh-huh. There are very few history books about John Jay. Well, then how do you know that they're not there? <laughs> like, you go to the biography section, you're going to find uh, Chernos Washington and his uh, uh, Hamilton. You're going to find plenty of Franklin biographies. And you're going to find a book about John Jay's horses. Cross your fingers. Let, let's hope and pray. Betsy, Philip, Philippia, and Fred. And Cub Jingleheimer Schmidt, the horse named after his business partner. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and like Johnny John Jay. <laughs> the horse named for several of his brothers. JJ, the horse faced horse. <laughs> JJ, the horse faced horse. Clap. Okay. Uh, so. I really want to be. JJ the horse faced horse. You just sound so friendly. Yeah? Yeah. 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 Okay. I bet he wears glasses. <laughs> horse glasses. How do the glasses hook on the ears? Did you never see that one TV show with the talking horse? Didn't he wear glasses? Was Mr. Ed nearsighted? Didn't he have glasses in an episode? Probably in one episode. I remember there was some old that TV show. That seems like what you do with the goofy I horse feel, face I horse. feel like it was that. I'm pretty sure they had like those round glasses, and then it's like those ones that have like the hoops that go behind your ear, but they were just really, really long <laughs> to reach his horse ears. And I feel like he would have those, but he would have like the the old style ones where like the, like the half half moon ones, like. He could have talked to his negotiating buddy, Ben Franklin, to make horse bifocals. Yeah, they'd look exactly like that, but for a horse. <laughs> Even without the help of noted diplomat and law scholar John Jay, the, the Constitution was written anyhow, uh, mostly by James Madison and all the other framers. But it needed to be argued for. It needed to be ratified. We had the, the people who believed in it had a case to present to the people. So Alexander Hamilton comes up with the idea for the Federalist Papers. Wait, what's his name? Alexander Hamilton <laughs> comes up with the idea for the Federalist Papers, a, a series of what would be 85 anonymously published letters just debunking the anti-Federalist arguments and explaining the benefits of the new Constitution. He came to John Jay first uh, when he you know, needed help writing all of these, uh, and James Madison as well. 
after. Uh, now, these papers are still very important today. They're often used in court as a way to understand just what the framers meant when they came up with all this business uh, and sort of what the intent was and, and uh, the specific word choice, what was going on there. Uh, it, it's the closest thing we have to, like, annotations for the Constitution. Mm. We, we remember Madison for writing the best ones, Hamilton for writing over 50 out of the 85, and John Jay wrote five of them. <laughs> he, he wrote uh, numbers two, three, four, and five, and then came back for an encore performance in number 64. He was just suddenly like lying in bed one night and be like, oh, I got one more. I remembered. I had something to do. Oh, oh my goodness. How, what are they up to? Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but uh, his assignment basically was, was to write the ones that had to do mostly with foreign relations and uh what this constitution would mean for the the interaction between the states and the european powers because okay. you know that, that's where his expertise lies yeah, spent a lot of time dealing with that stuff mm -hmm. makes sense so uh federalist number two comes down to the, the argument that without a strong union, the U.S. will be vulnerable to foreign attack and uh, could even be put back into colonial status. In Federalist Number 3, he, he argues that a unified nation will better promote peace and negotiate treaties on better terms. Uh, you know, a united front is a stronger front. Uh, in Federalist Number 4, he says a unified nation will be a greater deterrent to foreign attack than 13 separate uncoordinated militaries. In Federalist Number 5, he says that dividing the states will lead to envy and inequality, which foreign powers may take advantage of, tearing America apart from within. These are all clearly on a theme. Uh, in fact, the, the individual titles of Essays 3 through 5 started with the phrase, The Same Subject Continued, colon, <laughs> and then their specific title. Nice. Uh, so then he comes back for, for uh, Federalist 64, which is about uh, the approval of treaties being the Senate's job is, is a good idea. By, by this time, the essays had moved on to much more like specific points <laughs> of the Constitution. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. Like, yeah. That, that's, that's where that yeah. power should lie. They had, a, they had a good idea when they put that in there. If you recall from the now-mentioned and popular song, John Jay Fell Ill, which is why he, he wrote five, right? It's in the lyrics. Do you want to know what sort of sickness he had? Yeah. It is likely that he was recovering from an injury incurred in the Doctor's Riot of 1788, huh. which is a story unto itself that I shall tell now. <laughs> tell me. I want to know. Okay. In these days, to get cadavers for study, doctors all around the place, but uh, in this case, New York City, would rob graves. Yeah. And in New York City, they robbed uh, two cemeteries just outside city limits, uh, which happened to be right next to Columbia College. They were the Pauper Cemetery and the Negroes Burying Ground. Uh, it's now known as the African Burial Ground National Monument. Yes. Uh, after this episode of history that I'm about to talk about, where it played a central role, it was then forgotten and rediscovered during excavation for a, a building. And yeah, I it, remember reading about yeah, that. Yeah, it, it is now a protected historical monument in uh, downtown Manhattan, and it's really cool. <laughs> and it's a reminder that uh, at this time, New York City had more slaves in it than any other city in the United States, aside from Charleston, South Carolina. We, we think of American slavery as a Southern thing, but New York was mm -hmm. built on the backs of slave labor mm -hmm. uh, and then built over their graves right there in uh, lower Manhattan. For a while, years up to this riot breaking out, free blacks in the city were petitioning to stop the practice of just body snatching, mm -hmm. desecrating these graves, but no change occurred uh, until one day medical student John Hicks was working in his office and there were some kids hanging out on the street that he just wanted to scare away. Maybe they were being jerks. Maybe he's just a surly old hermit of a medical student. <laughs> I don't know. But he took a severed arm and waved it out the window at the kids and told one of them that it was their mother's. What John Higgs probably didn't know is that that boy's mother had died recently. Oh! 
that's that's not good. So that boy's father went to the uh, uh, recent grave, dug it up the coffin, and found it empty. Oh fuck! <laughs> so there was a riot in the streets, like th- this uh, sort of open secret that that made doctors in the city very unpopular boiled over into a huge mob marching on Columbia, marching on the hospitals of the city, and, and doctors just fleeing or going deep underground into hiding. The, the governor called in the militia and the cavalry to disperse crowds. Uh, the, the low estimate is that three militia and three rioters died. The upper estimate is as many as 20 people total died in these riots. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in all this... The the only account I got of what he was sick from was that it's at least a bit likely that uh, he was hit by a rock or run over by a cart or something. He was somehow <laughs> that John Jay was injured during this doctor's riot. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so that explains his absence between Federalist 5 and Federalist 64. <laughs> he was recovering from... Something. From something in the middle of this uh, strange episode in uh, medical education in America. And so with that, I think we're going to take a quick break and get back onto what John Jay did in this brand new government he, he helped promote. Okay. And maybe more about his horse. Perhaps. There's a brand new government. Yeah. Uh, the, the Constitution is ratified uh-huh. in part due to John Jay's uh, uh, contributions to uh, the Federalist Papers. Uh-huh. And J.J. the horse voice. Horse? Yeah. He pulled the cart where they distributed the pamphlets out the back. Yeah. And he had some kids. J.J. the horse-faced horse had kids? Yeah. Did the kids vote? Now there's little, little, little Jays running around. I'd really like to see your sources. <laughs> There's a book out there. It's, it's got a red cover. Okay. It's very thick. Sure. Yeah, I don't remember who it was by. But... Oh, it wasn't J.J. the Horse-Faced Horse's autobiography. Well, no, he's a horse. He can't write. Okay. But his uh, kids can change the the trajectory of, of world history. I just said that they were born around this time, so you know. Okay. I didn't say that they were, like, changing anything. They're just children. I mean, come on. What do you expect from them at this age? What do I expect from these fictional horses? (laughs) Where was I even? Where was I even? Uh, You were talking about, you know, things that happened, and here we are. (laughs) So the Constitution has been ratified. Uh Uh-huh. And so with the new government, there's new government jobs. Yeah. And so Washington gets elected as our very first president under the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And he goes shopping around to people who, who do good work to, to fill some positions. And he goes to John Jay and says, hey, you did such a good job as a minister for foreign affairs. You want to be the secretary of state? And he said, no, no, I don't. <laughs> that job was awful. I got this horse out of it, but that job was bad. <laughs> I would like to be Chief Justice of the United States. And Washington said, yeah, okay. And there we go. That's why John Jay is the first Chief Justice of the United States of America. Good for him. So he held that job for about five years. And over those five years, the court filed seven opinions. That's, uh, that's not a lot, is it? To compare, in the 2015 term, the Supreme Court issued 80 opinions. <laughs> and one of them was dead for most of it. Another duty justices had at the time, uh, they were required by law to travel to circuit courts and sit on those benches uh, twice a year so they'd be up to date uh, on what was going on in uh, the different regions of the country, keep up to date on state law, and, and, you know, the situation on the ground. Jay threatened to resign because of the travel schedule, sometimes being 19 hours a day on the road. It was, it was miserable. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Uh, That's in a, like, carriage. There, there were no interstates. Eisenhower yeah. had not done that yet, because he wouldn't be born I mean, for centuries. it's a lot of quality time with 
our horse friend. Mm-hmm. And it probably but wasn't that, even his horse. That really keeps him away from his children. You mean John Jay or JJ the horse face horse? JJ <laughs> the horse face horse? I don't know if John has children. He, do- he does. Okay, he does. you haven't talked about them. They're not historically significant. Okay, well, the, ch- the offspring to, of horses are. I had to cut something to make room for this recurring bit. <laughs> and it's a good bit. It better be. <laughs> Congress did lower that requirement to only one circuit around the country per year. Now, his most significant case of those seven was Chisholm versus Georgia. This guy named Chisholm from South Carolina sued the state of Georgia for a debt he was owed from the Revolutionary War. Uh, Georgia refused to even show up to make a defense. They issued their opinion that they had sovereign immunity. They they could not be held uh, liable for this case in federal court. Well, it's hard to move a whole state as well. Yeah, you'd have to build a really big courtroom. Jay's decision, and speaking for the four-to-one majority, found for the plaintiff, Chisholm, and set the precedent that states could be sued by citizens of other states. That that's allowed. Congress responded by passing the 11th Amendment, saying, no, 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 that's not allowed. (laughs) So in a sense, his most significant case and most significant precedent from the bench was that Congress can change the Constitution if, uh, in response to the court saying that something's unconstitutional. Now, his most significant precedent, then, came when President Washington asked the uh, court for advice on 29 questions about international laws and treaties as he was trying to maintain neutrality while Britain and France went to war. Again, some more. They just keep doing it. The court just refused to answer, instead saying that weighing in on executive matters would violate the separation of powers. The precedent there is that the court will only issue opinions on cases brought before it. They do not issue advisory opinions. Or else maybe uh, John and his friends didn't want the extra work. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what's going on with these guys. They they only heard seven cases in five years. It's a lot of travel. In fact, he uh, had so much free time in court that he uh, sailed to England to uh, negotiate the Jay Treaty of 1794. What is the Jay Treaty? Well, if you remember, we mentioned it in our very first episode about (gasps) Mackinac. See, there were a lot of issues over the last 10 or so years about the the Treaty of Paris. Uh, While the British had ceded the Northwest Territories to the Americans, they hadn't left the forts there. They they were still hanging out, including in Mackinac. Mm Mm-hmm. The British had confiscated about 250 American merchant ships between 1793 and 1794 while they were uh, blockading France. Uh, Americans wanted compensation for slaves that had been captured and freed during the Revolutionary War. They also wanted a chance to trade in the British Caribbean. And the Canadian border was pretty vague. (laughs) It's around this rock, maybe. Had to sort of nail that down. So uh, when the treaty was finished, the terms were that uh, the British did immediately abandon uh, forts in American territory. Britain was given most favored trade status, uh, which France was pretty miffed about. That makes sense. The British compensated owners of the ships that had been confiscated, and in exchange, Americans were were held legally liable to to honor their pre-war debts to British companies and individuals. Now, Jay didn't even try to get compensation for slaves. That's something that made him and his uh, uh, party in Washington even less popular among the the southern landowning class. And uh, his negotiations failed to address the impressment of sailors. British ships would find uh, an American sailing around and say, hey, you, um, you work for our Navy now. The end. Knock you over the head, throw you out of ship. Oh, you work for us now. The, the uh, issue of impressment and some of these other items led sort of directly toward the War of 1812, but at least it got postponed for 18 or so years. Yeah. Uh, now, the ratification of this uh, treaty was, the debate was very heated, and it was part of the split that formed the first party system, the uh, Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists or Democratic-Republicans or... Jeffersonians, etc. They really needed, like, a a branding team. (laughs) There's no logo even, just a mess. 
Jeffersonian protesters cried out in the streets, quote, damn John Jay, damn everyone that won't damn John Jay, damn everyone that won't put lights in his window and sit up all night damning John Jay. <laughs> That's thorough right there. Sit up all night and just damn him. Ah! He was even burned in effigy in a number of town squares. Man. The treaty was ratified 20 to 10 by the Senate the exact two-thirds majority they, they needed for it to go through, mostly due to Washington's influence. Now, Madison, who was serving in the House of Representatives for Virginia at the time, argued that the House had a right to accept or reject the treaty on constitutional grounds. Now, he would know as the father of the Constitution. <laughs> However, he lost that debate, and uh, the, the oh, House no. never really got a chance to, to weigh in. I don't know what it says, but guys, I wrote it. I wrote the thing. You just wait until all those Federalist Papers are no longer uh, anonymous. You're going to see I wrote all the good ones. It's true, he did. There were some unforeseen consequences to the Jay Treaty. Article 3 in particular gave Native Americans the right to freely pass between British and American territory and, quote, freely carry on trade and commerce with each other very good thing, mm -hmm. right? That, that's just going to help uh, everybody prosper. You know, it's in everybody's best interest. But that still continues to this day. Native Americans born in Canada are still entitled to enter the United States for the purpose of employment, study, retirement, investing, and or immigration. And Article 3 of the Jay Treaty is still the basis of most claims to Indian rights, still. Now, an interesting note about the Jay Treaty, though it bears his name as the main negotiator. It was actually the horse. He named it for the horse. No, no. It's named for him, oh. himself, John Jay. But it was written by Alexander Hamilton. Could he not write at that time? Or was he just too lazy? Hamilton was a, a better writer and a, a power-grabbing guy with his hand in every pot at the time. Okay. While he was serving as uh, as Chief Justice of the United States, he was elected as governor to New York. So in order to accept that job, he resigned from the court and then, you know, got sworn in and served in what would be his final elected office. His six years as New York governor, 1795 to 1801, are notable for two main things. One, in the election of 1800, he refused to gerrymander electoral districts, and his other thing, he signed legislation that ended slavery in New York. Hey. Now, the election thing was part of Hamilton's scheme to have Charles Pickney elected president. Uh, it didn't work for a lot of reasons, one of which is Jay's refusal to sort of fiddle with the electoral districts. Another is that people liked John Adams more than they liked Alexander Hamilton at the time. <laughs> And I guess they like Jefferson more than both of them when they went to the polls. How about that? But that's a different segment. So let's talk about ending slavery in New York then. Earlier, when he was serving in the New York legislature, he proposed bills to end slavery twice. Uh, neither one passed. Now, the thing is, everybody at the time agreed that slavery in New York had to end. His second bill was submitted in 1785, and by that time, everybody in the legislature had voted at least once for some form of emancipation. The question was what rights to give the former slaves and how much compensation should be given and to whom. Like, will the state buy slaves from owners and then free them? Or will the state guarantee these slaves have enough money to feed themselves for at least a little while? Mm-hmm. Or how gradual, etc. All th these were what was being debated, not the fact of emancipation. How do we do this? The the process. Yeah. Yes. In, in seventeen eighty five, he did found the New York Manumission Society, uh, which organized bo boycotts of slave supported merchants and papers and provided legal aid to freed slaves. So he was maybe not the spearhead forefront of the issue, but compared to all the other major founding fathers. He was at the front of it. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the act that he did sign into law in the 1790s then. It's called An Act for the Gradual Abolition of Slavery. It provided that from the 4th of July that year, all children born to slave parents would be free, subject to lengthy apprenticeships, and that slave exports would be prohibited. Now, those children who were born into freedom 
would be required to serve the mother's owner until age 28 for males and age 25 for females, uh, which is far, far beyond the typical period of uh, indenture. Now, the law then sort of created a new type of indentured servitude while providing for eventual freedom for children born to slaves. It did not provide government payment of compensation to the owners, uh, it did provide legal protection and assistance for free blacks kidnapped for the purposes of being sold into slavery. Thank goodness. Uh, and all slaves were emancipated by the 4th of July, 1827. Slowly, but surely, eventually. Now that process may have been the largest total emancipation in North America before 1861, Unless you count the capture and freeing of uh, slaves by British troops during the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. It, it was a very yeah. handy tactic. Yeah. <laughs> At the time he signed that into law, John Jay did own eight slaves himself still. Uh... He, he made a habit of using his wealth to buy slaves and eventually free them. Once he felt they'd done enough work for him to pay back what he bought them for. Uh, and remember, um, this this is the good slave owner. Like, it's yeah. so strange to me. Like, obviously far better than Jefferson was on the issue. Or Washington, who uh, freed his slaves in his will after his wife died. Yeah. If you were to rank them... The, the major founding fathers, Jay would be on top, but still he comes up so far below what we would consider, like, the least you could do. Yeah. JJ the horse-faced horse is very upset at him about all this. Yeah. JJ the horse-faced horse never owned anyone. No. Because he was a horse. He left. Oh, yeah, he, he just... He's like, I'm done with you. He tramped off into the wilds I'm of the New York Hills. Taking my family and we are leaving you. Tiny, you don't deserve us in your life. His tiny horse-faced children. Yeah. Some of them nearsighted. Inherited that from their father. Yeah. With their ridiculous horse glasses. Yeah. Okay. Following his two terms, he, he declined to run for governor again. And then was invited to return to the Supreme Court and turn that down too. Just went off into the country to retire and settle down. The, the seat of Chief Justice of the United States went to John Marshall instead, who was the first significant Chief Justice. The Marshall Court is the first court that did anything kind of important ever. Yeah. Even though he was the fourth Chief Justice. Uh, John Jay retired to the country with his wife. His wife, who was given a very unflattering description by a Spanish diplomat, if you recall. However, she died in 1802, only a few months after the move. So Aww. that quiet life together didn't last very long, unfortunately. Uh, he was content just to live and, uh, you know, study his Bible and write to his friends in life. He didn't do very much to secure a legacy. He responded to letters when they came, but didn't seek out writing engagements or try to spread his influence. He, he wasn't always writing up Judge Marshall or... President Jefferson or anybody, like, you know what I think. He wasn't that kind of guy. His writings are mostly about his worries about, you know, the War of 1812 and uh, sectional rivalries threatening to upset the, the union that, that he helped bring into being. So he's more worried about the future of America than the future of his memory, which is a quote that I found in like a, a historian's article about the forgotten John Jay. But I'm not so sure. Okay, I didn't read these letters and the historian did, but those matters are things that reflect directly on his legacy and actions. Yeah. Like, he made two peace treaties with Britain. Why wouldn't he be concerned about an erupting war with Britain reflecting on him? Isn't that the subtext? A little bit. A little bit. Like, again, I didn't read the letters, but I, I come on now. Uh, the same thing with sectional rivalries when he's like, okay, okay, I know the South wants to sail through New Orleans, but screw that. We have fisheries up near Maine to worry about. <laughs> now, the, the story of John Jay, the, the forgotten founding father, ends in 1829 when he died shortly after what is believed to be a stroke at the age of 83. So, have you learned something, dear? Yeah, I didn't know anything about him. No, not, no, like, not a thing. No. Why do you think that is? Like, okay, you know things about John Adams. Yeah. Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. James Madison. Yeah. 
I've like heard of all of them too. Yeah, like in every, like quite often. Even in like the the discussion of this episode, they all yeah, came up. They all came up. Why do you think John Jay hasn't? He was kind of lazy. <laughs> <laughs> he just wasn't getting in there. He, he wasn't I mean, uh, get things done. Kind of guy. He did a lot of things, but they all kind of seem half-assed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna do this, but only this much, and I'm gonna do this. But only this much. I guess it's not his fault people weren't bringing cases to the Supreme Court. Like, they have a very rigidly defined jurisdiction. Yeah. But still. Which, and, you know, maybe it's not that he he was not putting in effort, but, like, he's there at the beginning of it when it isn't as structured. It isn't as, like, developed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's usually when things are just kind of left to be and people don't necessarily know how to utilize it and use it and take advantage of what is in existence what what happened to jj the horse-faced horse after Uh, he left with his family he joined the circus because wouldn't you want to pay like a nickel to see that horse that's the horse that brought america out of british rule but were they happy they were very very happy did he get to see his grandchildren his grand horses? His grand horses. Yes. I think his it's his great 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 whatever grandchild, grand horse is is working on uh trying to fix um nearsightedness <laughs> yes. in horses. The, I think that's what their life work is now. Yeah, the the trick is getting LASIK surgery tools that work with hooves. Yeah. That's that's the real hurdle to yeah. overcome. So, darling, did you learn something? I learned so much about the, the lost history of equestrian Americans. <laughs> and with that, we're going to take one more break and be back with some letters you sent us. Full of mail and maybe uh, some feed for some horses. Last episode, there was no prompt, which some of you were very uh, uh, excited to, to point out, as if there was some sort of gotcha happening. But no, I just didn't give one because I thought y'all are so good at writing letters. I'm going to take the training wheels off. I'm going to see what happens when you're left to your own devices. And the letters we did get, I'm very happy with. I think it was a good call. So let's get to them. Right, so we uh, got an email from David. Hi, David. David was listening to our uh, old episode on presidential ads and wanted to share his favorite ad, which is one that we know very well. So in Chicago, the CTA put out these ads, courtesy ads, basically trying to tell people not to be slobs or jerks when riding buses or trains. They are quite amusing. I really like the one, personally, where they're like, Football players trying to rush on the train without letting, like, anyone off. Yeah, I enjoy those as well. Um, And I would say check those out, people, because there's some pretty funny posters for them. Thank Thank you, you, David. David. Uh, We got two emails from listener Noah. Uh, This is an answer to the local oddity prompt, and Noah wants to talk about Euclid Hall, one of Toronto's castles. Uh, it It was a bit of a trend for wealthy people in Toronto to build their great big mansions and, and give them castle-like elements to really stand out. Now, the family left the building, and it is currently home to a chain steakhouse. <laughs> but in between, it became known as one of the most haunted buildings in all of Toronto. Noah's mother and some friends had their own uh, spooky uh, experience about a year ago when they ate at uh, the steakhouse and snuck upstairs. There are a few mysterious deaths in the history of the building. Some say murder. The the ghosts may have claimed a would-be robber who died falling through the skylight trying to break into the forbidden third floor. So that's a bit of a spook house there. Thank you, Noah. And that brings us to second, David. (laughs) 
Second David wants to tell us about his favorite amusement park ride, a roller coaster based on the 2002 live-action Scooby-Doo film that he claims no one remembers. I disagree. Oh, I remember it. Because the Shaggy in that movie went on to be fantastic in The Descendants. (laughs) She left George Clooney for Shaggy. Yeah, and it was the right call, because George Clooney sucks in that movie. He's a bad person. But. His local oddities are animals from Tasmania. Uh, The first, the Tasmanian tiger or thylacine. Uh, I will point out our composer goes by the screen name Thylacinus. So so we're a little familiar with this creature. Uh, It was hunted to extinction by white settlers, the last one dying in zoo captivity in 1936. But there is still a sort of Bigfoot-like industry of uh, sightings and and such that are all unsubstantiated, if you want to look at them rigorously, but that doesn't stop them from popping up. The second uh, local oddity animal is the Tasmanian fox. Now, foxes uh, were introduced to Australia by uh, uh, the the English gentry who wanted to keep doing fox hunts because... When you move to a new continent, you bring your hobbies with you. But they never got onto the island of Tasmania, which was spared from the the, uh, ecological disaster of introducing foreign predators to to an island like that. However, foxes are still sighted, uh, whether it's uh, an inconclusive mistake or a deliberate hoax. There is a government fox eradication task force to hunt down and destroy foxes, which may or may not even exist. Their funding was eventually quietly removed in 2014. Probably good. (laughs) Probably. So thank you, David. Kyle actually asked us a question. Have either of us had a band or a musical or performance that we've seen or done more than 10 times. And Kyle goes on that he saw the band Mindless Self-Indulgent 65 times live. You're so jealous, aren't you? That is insane. (laughs) Kyle, I'm so jealous you got to, like, hang out in CBGBs. Like, come on, man. So is there a band musical performance that seen or done more than 10 times? Carbon Leaf might be close to 10. Carbon Leaf, I think we have seen 10 times or maybe more. Yeah, probably. I think we have. If Ted Leo toured more all the way to Chicago instead of like getting to Cleveland and turning around back east. We we try to see a lot of different stuff. Bands we definitely go see multiple times. They keep writing new songs, dang it. I don't feel like anyone comes around enough that we could possibly see them. I feel like we could like do too much light every other month for a long time and hardly ever see the same thing twice. Because that's the nature of too much light. That's... That's what that show is like. Anyhow, thank you, Kyle. Yeah, so... (laughs) Bob sent us a pretty cool article about a guy who does underwater photography in a local Iowa lake. And there's some fun shots of of an ice truck that's uh, been down there for about uh, 70 years now, uh, covered in, in all sorts of growth. And also tells us about a museum in Kansas City dedicated to things that are being recovered from the steamship Arabia that went down in the 1850s, nearly fully loaded with supplies it was taking to frontier settlements. That that is really cool. The the provenance is very interesting, but I imagine a lot of the objects aren't. Probably not. But like the idea of that is just how many 1850s hammers can you look at? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Bob. Fiona writes with a correction to somebody else's letter uh, uh, about the Poe toaster. Poe toaster is not just probably more than one person due to the, the many years, but it is a, a fact confirmed by the toaster themselves. Uh, in 1996, there was a note left on Poe's grave saying that the torch was being passed. Now, in 1999, the note left said that the previous Poe toaster said that the previous one had died the previous year. So there's a minimum of three. Now, the the 99 and after toaster didn't have the same sort of reverence and mystique 
he he left a lot of notes uh like one just talking about the super bowl that year and and one decrying that france didn't want to go to the iraq war during like the freedom fries era of, of american politics the the toaster's last visit was on 2009 uh the 200-year anniversary of Poe's death. Now, Jeff Jerome, who uh, was who took care of the graveyard and and saw the toasting occurred, said that the new one didn't particularly care about the tradition, and uh, left a final note that uh, Jerome thought was so dismaying that he lied and said it didn't exist. Uh, since 2010, there has been no Poe toaster seen. If I lived there, I'd do it. I'd be the mysterious guy, and I'd do a classy. I think like Poe toasters one and two. I think someone needs to make a brand of toaster strudels called Poe toaster. Yeah, yeah. Because that's all I keep thinking about. Would it be filled with macabre darkness? Yes. And uh, yearning for one's underage cousins. They'd be very bad tasting toaster strudels. But the box filled with sadness. But the box would have an incredible vocabulary. <laughs> Thanks again, Fiona. Bryce sent us an email. The story of the straw goat arson uh, reminded them of some intentional pyromania that they grew up with. Um, For the past 90 years in Santa Fe, they have kicked off the celebration of the city's birthday by burning a 50-foot-tall marionette of Zozabra, uh, the personification of gloom and misfortune. Uh, People submit their troubles, and they get burned alongside Take That's that, Burning Man. <laughs> what a ripoff. Thanks, Bryce. Claritech sent us an email about their favorite oddity, which is about Harold Holt. Uh, on a family outing in December of 1967, Holt went swimming by himself and disappeared. Um, it was empty, but it was really close to a military base that mobilized because he was the prime minister, so they really wanted to find him. But they Did never, they, they didn't. Did they really want to find him? He says most people agree that it's probably, you know, swept away, drowned. Um, but it's led to a lot of conspiracy theories over the years. I love how you waited to tell us that it was the prime minister. Yeah, that's something you put in the first paragraph. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, some guy. Wait, what? <laughs> Thank you, Claritic. James wrote us a letter and went in a bit of a different direction, seeing that we did not ask you, the <laughs> listeners, a question. He turned around and asked us three, I guess, to make up for lost time. Uh, number one, if the Hodag is Grant's second favorite cryptid, what is his favorite? I can tell you right now, it is the Squonk. The Squonk is my favorite cryptid. Uh, number two, what is your favorite piece of entertainment media that takes place in history? Dear, I think you mentioned yours earlier tonight. Good old American Girl series books yeah. from my childhood. I'd say that's mine. What's yours? Mine You said you can't say Doctor Who. I wasn't going to, <laughs> but now I will. I was going to say uh, the, the Three Musketeers, because it's a cool bit of French history and swashbuckling action adventure. But now that you think you're clever and telling me that I can't count a Doctor Who story, I'm going to say the Aztecs from 1963. <laughs> Because I love their fantastic hats. And that brings us to question three. Are you going to do an episode on Michigan attraction and namesake for one of my favorite albums, Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum? Probably not. Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum is a place filled with some oddities and mostly, like, coin-operated machines of all types. Oh, where is it? It's got pinballs, it's got arcade games, it's got those, like, uh, uh, fairground fortune teller machines. They, they also have one of the electric chairs from Sing Sing Prison. So you really want to go now, don't you? But thank you, James. Thank you very much. That brings us to Purin, mm-hmm. who uh, wrote us about other oddities. He says, you can't beat medical school museums. I hear other... they're full of dissected cadavers <laughs> stolen from poor people's <laughs> graves. Uh, uh, some Some quick... Internet searching uh, led to uh, him finding that there's a museum dedicated to things doctors have pulled out of someone's throat. Uh, and that place has the highlight being plaster, a plastered cast of a Siamese twins. Did they find this plastered cast in someone's throat? Yeah, like, is that 
was that there or is that just something they have? I, I think that's an additional. Additional, like they they branch out a little. A little bit. Also found in the Museum of Questionable Medical Devices that's in Minnesota. That's a great name for a museum. There's actually a museum here we really want to yeah, check out. The Museum the, of Surgical Science. Yeah, we are we are planning to go there at some point. I am excited. I've heard the Museum of Surgical Science is a great place for first date in Chicago. They do weddings. And uh, Peter also says that he now feels that he is bound by what seems to be an ancient blood pact to write in every show. How did you know? How did you know that we... What are we... you doing by my back? Don't say we. <laughs> I don't partake in any forbidden blood magics. Don't tell them. <laughs> Anyways, thank you for writing yet again. <laughs> Thanks to everybody. Uh, we love getting your letters. You can send those letters to... HistoryHoneysPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you very and much. feel free. You can write about a prompt we have, or you can send us other things our way. You Absolutely. don't have to just write us about a prompt. Have we got one for episode 12? Halloween urban legends from where you're from. So share your local hauntings. We already have Noah's. That worked out. Yeah. Send me some more of those. <laughs> Maybe that's a hint. Other ways you can get in touch with us are following us on Facebook, uh, our History Honeys page. Give us a like, why don't you? Uh, or following us on Twitter, at History Honeys. Mm -hmm. uh, while you're uh, checking out us, why don't you help others do the same? We would love it if you left us a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you can. And I'd love it doubly if you uh, sent the episode to a friend, family member, or just anyone you think would enjoy listening to a show like this one, because we sure do enjoy making it for y'all. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, with that, all that's left to say is... I'm Elena. And I'm Grant. And history is better with, with your honey. honey.